Welcome to the 21st Century Church podcast. Please check out our website at 21stcenturychurch.co.uk for more information. We'd love to connect with you, so head over to our Facebook and Instagram pages. Enjoy this message from our senior pastor, Stefan Jones. On the 20th of August, 2016, I had a very unique cultural experience because I attended a full-on Swedish wedding. Now, I think I've got a picture here of the bride and groom, my friends from college, Richard and Amanda. They look Swedish, don't they? They've got a real Swedish look about them. They were here, and he preached a great word a couple of years ago, and, uh, and it was a privilege to be there. But I always assumed that within the Western world, our weddings were more or less the same. And the service wasn't too different. It was very traditional. It was in Swedish, and we you know what was going on, but that was okay. But the reception was very, very strange. Now, there were too many speeches in my wedding, okay? I know that if you were there. I, I, I know I'm not going to name and shame the people who went too long, but, uh, but it was too long. But this is the thing. If you think British wedding speeches can go on, you ain't seen nothing if you haven't been to a Swedish wedding. The count of the total for the day was, I think, around 18 or 19 speeches, Okay, and I'm not talking two-minute speeches here, okay? They're quite long. They spread them out, so you get speeches before your starters, speeches before the mains, speeches before the dessert. One of the speeches was some of Amanda's friends. They had put together a 20-minute grease medley acting out their love story. Like, this is the, the scale of the speeches. They also have these weird little traditions, so if the bride or groom leaves the room, all the males or females can run up and kiss them as much as they want, which I just find a very strange thing. If you notice in my wedding, some of the Swedes who were male for some reason, when Miles left the room, decided to do that to me, and it was very strange. Everyone else was just looking on. There was the food. The food we had was a deer steak, and I'm pleased to say that Rudolph tastes very nice, and so uh, it was really good. Sorry, any veggies didn't... Uh, yeah, anyway, but there's lots going on. And actually, by midnight, that was the point where I thought, right, it's coming to a close now. And all of a sudden, the DJ comes out. They start handing around hot dogs. And so the disco part of the evening started at midnight. The bride and groom are still there at this point. It ended at 2 o'clock in the morning, where all of a sudden, everything went off. And we walked outside into the woods, and the Swedes all had candles that came from nowhere, and they sang some strange Swedish elven-like song as we sang the bride and groom to the car. I don't know what was going on. And at 2 a.m., finally the bride and groom left. I don't know how they had any energy left for anything else that night. I don't know. But I left knowing I had experienced something very different. It was very different. This week, as Hywen mentioned, we had this is funeral. And I don't know if you can say this about funerals, but I think it was my favorite funeral I've ever been to. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons is because it was very different. Now, any wedding or funeral we have here at 21CC, it's going to be a little bit different to a traditional service. But the final song, which the family asked for, and it did this apparently loved clapping along to, in a funeral was not today, okay? So we finished singing on, let the devil know not today. 
Paul clapping, thinking, what is going on? But afterwards, I had the most amazing feedback from people. People saying, that was amazing. But, you know, people telling me, I wish you'd taken my mother's funeral. That's what one person said. Um, people saying, like, that, that it was, there was a sense of joy there. But then the message was, you know, it was, it was the Christian message one person was mentioning to me. It was like a light bulb moment. And I said, yes, our methods are maybe different. But the message, and he kind of was finishing me saying, yeah, it's the same. It's the same message. And it's not what people expect today. It's very, very different. Because in today's culture, authentic, orthodox Christianity is very different. It doesn't fit in easily with our culture if you're paying attention. If you've ever read the Gospels all the way through and you gaze upon the real Jesus, not the construct of our culture stereotypes you will see that he is different. He reacts in ways you think, I wasn't expecting that. Or the ways you think he shouldn't. See, there's a misconception of what Christianity is these days. It's not about nice people being nice. It's not a moral code. It's not self-improvement. It's not adding a bit extra to your life so you can be a good person. It doesn't fit in with our culture. And I know at the moment in this season of church life, you've got a lot of new faces around church, and that's just such an awesome thing. And if you have been someone who's coming along for the first time in the last six months or year, you are so welcome, and we love having you here. We love having new people here. But the heart behind what we're going to do now is, is we're going to start finally this new series where really what we wanted to do was do a crash course of what is Christianity really all about? What is it? What, getting back to the core of it. And for us, maybe you've been Christians a long time. We need this reminder as well. So we're going to keep working through this throughout most of the rest of the year in the 11M. And it's going to be between me and Hylwen. So we're going to do it together. And we're going to take breaks for special occasions, of course. And in our connect groups, we're going to do this. But if you want a series title, the title would be Christianity 101. Christianity 101. And we're going to cover the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount has been called the Manifesto of the King, the Magna Carta of the Kingdom. It's the greatest sermon ever preached. One 19th century commented and noted, we are near heaven here. The Dictionary of the Gospels points out, no other short section of the Bible has been more prominent in theological discussion and in the general life of the church. Even in our modern secular societies, the sermon's influence continues. As we go through it, you realize phrases you might not have known were from the Bible that people use today without realizing, you know, from going the extra mile to salt of the earth to turn the other cheek, all from the Sermon on the Mount. This is a jewel of the scripture, and it covers a lot. The Tyndall Commentary notes, it's a manifesto setting out the nature of life in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is covering what life looks like in God's kingdom. So we're going to do an 18-part series. We're going to cover every verse because I don't want an edited, filtered Jesus that conforms nicely to what our culture is, where we cut out the bits we don't like and just keep the things that we kind of think always nice. I want the unedited, full-on Jesus in all of his fullness. So we're not going to skip a single verse. We're going to do the whole lot. And I'm glad some of you are pumped because I'm going to tell you now, Jesus is going to get in your face in this series. 
he's going to. This is a list of the topics we're going to cover. I'm not going to read this in every start of our series, but for you to know where we're going. Part two, changing the world. Part three, how to handle the Old Testament. Part four, anger issues. Part five, sex and lust. Part six, marriage and divorce. Part seven, oaths and integrity. Part eight, handling difficult people. Part nine, a perfect love. Part 10, giving generously. Part 11, how to pray and fast. Part 12, how to handle money. Part three, how to handle worry. Part 14, dealing with criticism. Part 15, the golden rule. Part 16, choosing your road. Part 17, spotting false prophets. Part 18, building on the rock. And this morning, part one, we're going to set it all up. And my title for part one and my key thought, my one thing I want you to take away from this morning is this. That this is different. This is different. It's been noted that Jesus' kingdom, you could say, is an upside-down kingdom. Everything is different. Or maybe actually we're the ones who's upside-down. And the kingdom of God is the right way up. So, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to delve into it. Lord, I thank you so much for your word, in all its fullness, in all its richness. And Lord, we thank you for the Sermon on the Mount, and the gift that it is. Lord, at the start of the series now, we pray, would you speak to us? Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts, open our ears, Make us receptive even to things maybe we don't want to hear, but we need to hear. Lord, we pray, would you speak to us what you want us to say? And we know that when we are living the kingdom life, that is the blessed kind of life. Lord, we pray. Be with us now. We pray in Jesus' name. And we all said together, amen. Okay, so Matthew 5, verses 1 to 6. So we're going to do the first six verses this morning. So here we go. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Now, straight away, you can see what I mean. This is different. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. What is this? Surely we would assume that what he was going to say is, blessed are the rich. Blessed are the comfortable. Blessed are the assertive. Blessed are those who do what's right for them. They're the people who are blessed. But Jesus says, no. This kingdom from the outset is different. It's a different kind of kingdom. Now, for us, actually, this, we should see this, right? Because secularism, it's not working. You know, the world says, blessed are the rich, but look at the UK. In the last 30 years, we're now three times richer than we were. Yet, studies consistently show that happiness is at a lower level than it was 30 years ago. Mental health problems are worsening. We're richer but we're not happier for it. Actually, society is getting worse. And Jesus is bringing a new kingdom, and it's different. But what you need to know straight away is this. It's a new kingdom, not new advice. It's not new self-help. It's a new kingdom. This is how N.T. Wright puts it. This is an announcement, 
not a philosophical analysis of the world. It's about something that's starting to happen, not a general truth of life. It is gospel. It is good news, not good advice. Whether you receive it or not, it's happening. A new era has begun. A new kingdom has come. You know, that, um, that amazing face-off at the end of the book of John with Jesus and Pilate have that face-off. And Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Basically, he's saying this, it's coming to it, but it's not from it. It's not of it, but it is coming to it, whether you like it or not. Now, a bit of a setup here. We've got four gospel accounts, okay? And we need to know a little bit about the gospel of Matthew before we begin there, because there's some things that are unique to him. So we've got four gospel accounts, basically four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. Now, if you're a skeptic this morning, you know, I want to let you know here that there is no other person in ancient history that has four eyewitness accounts in the time. It is unprecedented in ancient history for this much content to be coming on one person. It's because God knew this is really important. And so people need to know what happened. They need to know what happened. Unlike four different newspapers reporting on the same event, each one has got the same basic facts, but each one would have its own perspective and viewpoints, okay? So if you read The Telegraph and if you read The Guardian about Theresa May resigning, you're going to get the same basic facts, but they're probably going to put it a bit differently because they've got their own kind of perspective on it, which is why, by the way, you shouldn't just read one newspaper. That's just my little just pet peeve. Put it in there. <laughs> read a couple, and so they tend to balance each other out a little bit. But we see here, right, Mark, that's the kind of the first gospel that's written. Probably Peter's scribe, it's an all-action narrative, okay? Mark is your blockbuster film, okay? That's what's going on here. It's fast-paced, lots of events, doesn't like lots of talking. That is constantly the verbs, you know, at once, at once, at once. That's what's going on in the Gospel of Mark. Luke is probably my, my favorite. He's the only Gentile author in the Bible, so he's not a Jew. He's a Greek doctor. And uh, so he's kind of bringing maybe more of the professional kind of aspect to it because he decides I'm going to do loads of study on this. He's a historian. And so in the Gospel of Luke, you have a lot of historical events and names and places and titles. But also he tends to cover the stories of outsiders. Seeing as he's an outsider, his Gospel starts with focus on two women. It's only in his Gospel do we have the par parable of the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, all these kind of one's about the outsiders. He really does have a thing about that. Luke loves bringing that. Now, John, John is maybe one of a thinker's kind of gospels. He's Jesus' disciple. He thinks he's his favorite. We've got the whole banter, him and him and Peter. It's the last gospel to be written. And John is wanting to flesh out how Jesus is the divine son of God. So it's got a lot of talking in it, a lot of theology in it. And because he's the last one and he wants to be a bit different, it's got the most unique content compared to the other three. The other three are called the synoptics. Basically, it comes from the Greek word optic, which is C, sin, as in S-Y-N, C together. So the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they see things together. They've got a lot of the same sources. John, he's just doing his own thing, okay? He's just out there, just loving life, doing whatever. But Matthew, you might notice, was also a disciple of Jesus, but if you flip your Bible from the Old Testament to the New, from Malachi, the first one you will come across is Matthew. Now, if you were paying attention, I just said Mark was written first. So why is Matthew first? 
But for Matthew, his big thing is to show you that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. He's got the most quotes about fulfillment of prophecy. For him, he's writing in particular to a Jewish audience. And that's important for us because we need to know that emphasis as we come through the Sermon on the Mount. Because there's a lot of parallels here. In Matthew 2, we read Jesus comes up from Egypt to Nazareth. In Matthew 3, he's baptized in the River Jordan. In Matthew 4, he's tested in the wilderness. And then we read Matthew 5, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. Okay, so let me spell that out here. In the Gospel of Matthew, we have Jesus. He leaves Egypt. He passes through the waters. He's tested in the wilderness. He climbs up a mountain and delivers teaching from God. Do you see the parallels here? Prince of Egypt. <laughs> okay. This is basically Matthew saying, this is the new Moses, but the greater Moses. Moses brought the old covenant. Now we have Jesus bringing a new covenant. And this is going to be a covenant of grace. This is going to be a new lifestyle. Like Israel on the banks of the River Jordan with a new covenant awaiting them. This is what's happening here. Is that Jesus is telling his disciples, I am bringing a new covenant. A new way to live. And I want you to learn, although this is a covenant of grace, he's the one who's going to achieve it. I want you to know what it means to live in the kingdom of God. What it means to live in the covenant. Okay, are you still with me? We covered a lot there of, you know... Bible study, we, we went deep. Okay, right. The text keeps building. Verse 2, it literally reads, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, the phrase there for open his mouth is kind of the Greek term might say today. He opened his heart. He spoke from his heart. It's really a solemn moment. The fact he sits down, this is what a rabbi would do when there was something really important to say. It's a huge moment. Jesus, God in flesh, is going to reveal the new way to live, the new path, a new covenant, a new kingdom. And he starts by proclaiming the word blessed. Now, let me pause there. I've got five quick points to run through as we're going to do this. So if you want to write them down, point one is this. This is a different kind of blessing. This is a different kind of blessing. Now, the word blessed here is a little bit misleading, okay, because the original Greek word there is makarios, and it's not necessarily the word for someone God blesses. It usually represents the word astre in the Hebrew, which is more like fortunate. It's the word to introduce someone to be congratulated, whose life is enviable, okay? Maybe you might say happy or fortunate. That would be maybe what we would think of as this word. Now, when I got engaged, so many people came up to tell me, congratulations, congratulations. You know, are you happy? As if I, I wasn't happy before. But are you, are, you, are you happy? Congratulations. I found it a bit odd. I mean, after a while, it gets overwhelming, and you get the feeling of, did people just amaze that he finally convinced somebody to marry him? And uh, when, I first, when I told my father, I think that's what happened because he literally went and found a dusty old bottle of champagne that I think he'd bought and long given up on and popped the champagne open. And when I told Hywin about it, she said, I never got any champagne for when <laughs> It says it all really, doesn't it? <laughs> so, uh, but you know, when we say to people, oh, you know, they're, they're blessed, they're fortunate. 
congratulations. That's the vibe behind the word here. That's the vibe behind this word where Jesus is saying, when they're saying these people are blessed, he's saying these people are fortunate. These people should be almost congratulated. These people should be envied. They are blessed. These are attitudes that we should consider to be fortunate if you have them. In the book, which we're covering with our connect groups, The Jesus Lifestyle, we're running parallel with it, with Nikki Gumbel, and it's a brilliant book. You know, in this section, he kind of focuses on, this is the secret of happiness, is if you can take on board these attitudes. Billy Graham, the legend that he was, called the Beatitudes the beautiful attitudes. It's the best way to think about it. Jesus is saying, if you've got these attitudes, you're blessed. You're to be envied. You're fortunate if you've got this. So, now we know that. Let's continue. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, this is different. It's a different kingdom. And number two, it's got a different kind of people. Now, the commentators point out it's not so much talking here about material poverty. That's not really what the emphasis is. The emphasis is on the poor in spirit. It's the people who have suffered People who are dependent on God and they know it. The kingdom of heaven is for them. One way you could translate that final part of the verse is that the kingdom of heaven consists of such people. The poor in spirit, those who are dependent on God, these are God's people. And if you want to see this in the practical world, look at the trends in our world today. In the non-Western world... Christian growth is off the scale. I don't know if you knew that. Today, there will be more Christians attending church in China than in all of Europe. Christian Europe, more people attending church in China today, this Sunday. In 1910, there were 12 million Christians in Africa. By 2020, the number's projected to be 630 million. The level of growth of Christianity over the last 50 years has been unparalleled, although it might not get onto British press. On the other side of things, meanwhile, University of London professor Eric Kaufman, he wrote a book, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? And he speaks of a crisis in secular liberal societies, where actually secular liberal religion is projected to shrink as a global percentage. As a percentage of the world's population, there will be less atheists in 50 years and less liberal types of religion will survive. The type of Christianity that grows is full-on orthodox Christianity, not the liberal kind. There's obvious clue there. Why? Because one is true and one is just kind of watering it down. We don't want to water it down. And he finishes by answering the question, shall the religious inherit the earth? With the one-word answer, yes. That's what the trends are showing. Jesus' words are working out in human history at the moment, in the macro. See, the kingdom does not belong to wealthy, well-off elitists who think they don't need God. The kingdom belongs to people who are poor in spirit, who know they need God, who are hungry for him, who search for him. That's why Jesus warns about it's hard for a rich man to be saved. Not that they can't be saved, but your wealth might fool you and you might not realize your need of God. You might be, you know, why, why in the West don't we see as many miracles and conversions as in Africa? Well, one reason probably is we're too well off. We're too comfortable. Jesus is talking about an attitude here, right? This is not your literal bank balance. It's a mentality. Blessed are the ones who are poor in spirit, who don't think I'm comfortable, so 
I don't need God. Just God is just, you know, some kind of crutch for lesser people. You're blessed when you know the reality <laughs> that God is everything. Now, it doesn't limit him. You know, our culture is riven with inequality. God is going to do something. I'm believing it in this country. But those who are poor in spirit, man, they're blessed. Scripture promises, seek and you will find. And notice a present tense. Theirs is the kingdom. It's not a future thing. It's a now thing. Kingdom of God is here. And it is growing all across the world. And its gates are wide open. So this morning, if you've ever felt like an outsider, if you've ever felt hopeless or sick or broken or weak, if you've ever thought, I'm not good enough, good news this morning. You're to be envied and blessed. For the kingdom of heaven consists of people like you. People like you. Enterprise translation puts it like this wonderful news for the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is yours. It's yours. See, this is different. Number three, this is a different kind of heart. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And then get some dude. Let's have a little break. Just get your notes out, maybe, and just make sure you wrote everything down if you want to catch up. No, then, this one is out there, isn't it? Who likes mourning? Why would you ever envy someone in mourning? It seems crazy, right? Let's be honest here. You're meant to engage the scripture honestly. Like, what, what, what is this? Alfred Tennyson famously put it, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And I think the clue is there. Because grief is the price we pay for love. Mourning springs from love. And this is a kingdom of love. So that means in a kingdom of love, in a broken world, there will be mourning involved. Nicky Gumbel notes how when he first got saved, he was filled with such a joy and this high and it was unbelievable. But then he realized all of a sudden the implications of what this meant. That there are those who are outside the kingdom of God who have yet to be reached. We live in a broken, dark world and he felt such a sense of grief. And his heart broke. See, the people of the kingdom are people with broken hearts. That's who they are. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a spy, pastor, theologian, hero, martyr of the church. He was one of the few who resisted Nazi Germany. And he was executed on the last day of the war for it. And I think I've got a picture of him to go up there. And he wrote a famous book on the Sermon on the Mount. And he noted in his commentary on this passage, those who mourn see that for all the jollity on board. The ship is beginning to sink. These aren't the people who are distracted by the nice things of this world while other people suffer. These are the people who see the suffering in the world and whose hearts are broken for it. You know, for me, I love what I do. I love serving Jesus. I love building the church. I love being a pastor. But the roots of why I do it is a heart that is broken for the church in Wales, that sees the spiritual state of my country and grieves for it. Some of my most intense spiritual experiences have been weeping by a chapel at what has been lost in Wales. That's at the root of what drives me, that this isn't right and it breaks my heart. You know, Haiwan, I think she's been sharing and she'll share more of it. She feels recently that God has been re-breaking her heart for the lost. If you notice when she was saying the praise reports about people being saved, she was filling up in the announcements. It's a heart that's broken, but blessed are those who mourn. You're blessed 
if you have that. We see this in Jesus himself, the happiest, most fulfilled person who ever lived. And yet he wept over Jerusalem. He wept over Lazarus. Even though he knew, I'm going to raise him in a minute from the dead. Victory is coming. But in that moment, with the people grieving, Jesus wept. Note the promise here, though, is that they shall be comforted. This is both present and future. For anyone who is mourning or feels like this now, you know, the word for comfort there is the root word, the same word that Jesus uses in John for the Holy Spirit, the comforter. When he says, I will pray the Father, he shall give you another comforter, that he may be with you forever. 2 Corinthians tells us that God is the God of all comfort. So in the now, there is a comfort in the, in the morning. The Spirit is with us. But also there's a future sense here that one day death will die. There will be no more sickness or crying or hurt or pain. God will personally wipe every tear away. We read in the book of Revelation. Everything sad will come undone. Suffering has a time limit. And that is a comfort. Yes, those who mourn are fortunate. They are blessed. For they are people who love. And they will be comforted. This is different, right? This is different. Number four, this is a different kind of character. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, when you read the word meek there, I mean, what comes to mind? Weak, spineless, feeble. It's not something we think I would actually want. But actually, the word really conveys something more like gentle, considerate, unassuming. It's the opposite of an arrogant, self-seeking spirit. Moses and Jesus are both pretty strong characters, and they're both described as meek in Scripture. They're under control, in other words. They're not out of control. They're submitted to God the Father. A meek person isn't defensive, doesn't give in to self-pity, isn't overly sensitive about themselves, isn't self-absorbed, doesn't make everything a drama at the slightest little hint of someone slighting them. One of our rules and sayings here at 21CC, if you've been around a long time, is to know this, is that we want to be a people who are unoffendable. We live in a culture where everyone is offended at everything and uses it to get a platform to get a leg up on other people. It's used as a weapon to kind of have a go at other people. We reject that offense-taking culture because it's not kingdom culture. It's petty and it's small and it's pathetic. We are not a people who get easily offended. Scripture says you're blessed if you overlook an offense in the book of Proverbs. We are not people who are easily offended. We're not all about ourselves. We're not obsessed with our self-image. That's not the kingdom way. Kingdom culture is different. Someone offends us, who cares? Bless them. Bless them. That's the way. That's the kingdom way. You know, in ministry and in life, it's not about forcing the door with victimhood. It's not what it's about. I remember someone saying in, in, in Hillsong when I was there, this was just on church on a Sunday, if you're looking to do more in ministry, don't force the door. That's not the way God works. Be faithful with what's in your hand. God will be faithful with what's in your heart. He will open the door when it's right. There's no shortcuts to learning humility. You can't shout your way to more things in the kingdom of God. You can't tell God I'm offended, so give me more things. That's not the way of the kingdom. Blessed are the meek, the unassuming, who put others first. 
and the promise for the meek is massive. They will inherit the earth. <laughs> Goes to show, isn't it? It's that thing. Power best belongs to people who don't want it. <laughs> best are the meek, for they are the ones who will inherit the earth. It's not just a heavenly reward here. This is a new creation perspective that the meek, the kingdom people, they are the ones who will inherit the original commission of humanity to rule and reign upon the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over it. To them belongs the blessing. And that word inherit, we're going to come back to that. And finally this morning, when the keys can come up, as we draw to a close here on part one, this is a different kind of motive. This is a different kind of motive. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, the Tyndall commentator notes, righteousness in Matthew is not so much being good or legally correct. It's a synonym for the Christian life, viewed as a relationship with God, focus in obedience. In other words, he's not talking about being legally correct or social justice. It's about a personal aspiration to be the kind of person who lives right with God, who is in relationship with God, who obeys him, who is with him. That's the, what are we talking about here? Now, Recently, in, in trying to kick the bug, one of the things I did was do a 24-hour fast. And I'll tell you, at the end of that 24-hour fast, I was hungry for that toast. There is no toast that tastes as good as when you've not had any food for 24 hours. There's nothing like it when you're really hungry. You know, M&S adverts do it to me as well. They just, it just makes you hungry when you look at them. You can't help it. But try and imagine that feeling of when you're really hungry. Maybe some of you right now are hungry and Sunday dinner is, is on the way. When you're in that place and you're really hungry, nothing else seems to matter other than satisfying that desire. And Jesus is saying that people who are like that, but their hunger is directed towards God, towards knowing him, towards living in right relationship with him, towards living that righteous kind of life with God. Those people who hunger for God they are the people who are blessed, who are fortunate, who are well off. Why? Because they will be filled. See, what's important to know here is this, that God and desire for him is the one desire which you will find total satisfaction for your soul in, and you will never get to the end of it either. Because there is no one else like God. See, our primary motive as kingdom people shouldn't even be, the first cause shouldn't even be doing ministry or doing good things. The first cause needs to be hunger for God. Not his hand and gifts he can give us. His face. To know him first. And everything else just, for those from there, to be right with God. What a promise, you will be filled. Tom Wright translated, you're going to be satisfied. The blue letter Bible spells it out, that word there is the word for feeding or gorging until you're full. It's the word for when you've been hungry all Christmas morning and you've had the Christmas dinner and now you just feel satisfied. But times a million. <laughs> That's what's being said here. If you desire God, you'll never get to the end of him. See, there is a satisfaction for that hunger and thirst, but there is so much more because you will never get to the end of who our God is. 
There is no one like our God. He is the one from whom all blessings flow. You know, C.S. Lewis said, too often as humans, we get too content playing in the little streams and the puddles rather than going to the source of the blessing itself, that God is the source of all good things. There is nothing like Him. Church, do not be content with playing in the little shallow pool of the streams of some of God's little blessings. Go to Him first. Go to the source first. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a right relationship with God, for they will be filled. I'm excited about that this morning. You should be excited about this morning because he's waiting for you. His arms are open wide. His arms are open wide. You can have as much God as you want. You can read as much of your Bible as you want. You can worship as much as you want. You can pray as much as you want. You don't have to just read one page of your Bible. You can read 10. You can read 20. He is there waiting. Now I've gone couple of minutes over, but I, for my application here, I haven't really got a practical thing because we're going to get practical in this series, okay? As we're going to get into the nitty-gritty. This is just the big picture setup. But I've got two questions I want to ask for us to ask ourselves this morning. And the first one is this. Are you hungry for something different? What is your motive? Here's the question. Why did you come to church this morning? Did you come out of duty? Or did you come because you were hungry for God? You wanted to hear his word, be in his presence, worship with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we all know there are times when we just got in the car and went with it, right? Don't feel bad necessarily, but... It's a good question to ask ourselves. Why am I doing this? And if you've lost that hunger and thirst, if you're honest about it, there's good news. You can ask him to make you hungry and thirsty for him because he's God. You can ask him. And the second question is this. If you're a Jesus follower this morning, are you different? Is your life visibly different from the culture around us? If someone was looking on at you, would they know that you belong to a different kingdom? Or would they assume that you're in the kingdom of this world? Or is it really obvious that this is someone who is in a different kingdom, who lives a different way? Are you someone who's visibly different? See, this is a new kingdom and it's a new covenant and everything has now been changed. It's a different kind of blessing for a different kind of people a different kind of heart and a different kind of character and a different kind of motive because this is a different kind of kingdom. And church, if you belong to the kingdom of God, you are blessed beyond all measure, whatever the circumstance. So let's be a people at the outset of this series that are committed to living in it. There is grace here but so much blessing. Let's be a kingdom people. And then we will see the world changed. Let's stand together. And I'm going to pray. And then we're going to go into some worship. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much. That you have come to bring something totally new. I thank you that the pressure is not on us. 
It's not good advice that we have to implement. This is gospel. This is good news. This is something you have already done. This is a new covenant, and it's a covenant of grace. And I thank you for all that you've achieved for us. But Lord, I pray right now, would you help us to live in it? to live in this freedom, to live in this victory, to live as kingdom people. We pray, would you give us a hunger and a thirst for you? Would you help us not to get distracted with the things of this world? Would you help us to go to you first, to seek your face, not your gifts? Lord, we pray we want to know you. I pray this is a church of people committed to knowing you first. And Lord, I pray from that place, would you make us different? Would you make us attractive, visible representatives, ambassadors of your kingdom? As we walk around the kingdom of the world, I pray would you help us be visible representatives of the kingdom of God? We thank you in this place and we pray with all the saints in all the churches all across the world today, that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth, in Trinity, in 21st century church, and in our lives as it is in heaven. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. And we all said together, amen. Lord, we thank you that there is none like you. There is no one who compares to you. Help us, we pray, to remember that, to remember that there is none like you. And we thank you that you love us and you desire us and you want relationship with us. We love you and we thank you that on the cross you made a way for us. You made a way for us. I just want to finish by praying for one more group of people. Maybe you came here today and you don't know this Jesus and you don't know this kingdom and you don't really understand what it's about and how it works. Well, what you need to know about this kingdom is that, yes, it's different and it's there in the symbol of the kingdom because the symbol of the kingdom is not a massive throne or gold or a big crown. The symbol of the kingdom of God across the earth is a cross. But when you think about it, it's very strange that an execution method is the symbol of the biggest movement on the face of the earth. But that's actually what it's all about, is that this is an upside-down kingdom. It's different. See, poverty and mourning and meekness, King Jesus knew all of those things. But the one thing he didn't know up until the cross was that hunger for relationship with God because he had it in all of its fullness. He was satisfied in it. But it's on the cross as the king is enthroned, as he takes our place, King Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The relationship was broken. And why was it broken? See, scripture says that we are rebels from this kingdom. We rebelled against God. We left. We sinned. The relationship was broken. And because it was broken, we couldn't go back to a holy God being a sinful people. But this is what was going on in this kingdom. What was going on on the cross? 2 Corinthians puts it like this, 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, 
God took the sin of all of us and put it on Jesus. And he represented our sin and died in our place so that we could gain his righteousness, his right standing with God, his relationship with God. And the clue is there in the text, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. To inherit something is family language. You don't inherit unless you're a son or a daughter. Jesus was outside and died so that we who receive him can come in and not just as citizens of the kingdom, but as a child of the king himself. We are now sons and daughters of God in right relationship with him and we will inherit all of the blessings of God. And this is what it says in John 1. To all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If this morning you want to become a child of God, all you've got to do is believe in him, receive this gift, you become a child of God and a child of the kingdom. Thanks for listening to this message from 21st Century Church. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd appreciate it if you could review and share it on social media. Remember to check us out at 21stCenturyChurch.co.uk for any more information. We'll see you next time.